0: To us and to all the people that are here in brussels on on the future of the euro with the name of euro tragedy ashoka welcome back to Bruegel. thank you for uh, for taking the time to come here and to discuss with us your views on the subject ashoka will talk about for 25 minutes with a presentation and then our own director will will comment on the book uh, but i would like to leave a little bit of time for many questions to come uh, from the audience given that of course that uh, we all have views on the subject Without any
1: further ado, Ashoka, the the floor is yours. (coughs) So let me first uh, thank you very much. Uh, I have, in in the acknowledgments to the book, uh, created a special space for thanking Bruegel, and especially Guntram and Matt, who is hiding behind over there. They have hosted me for many summers and given me a very valuable platform to test my controversial ideas. and so I'm always delighted to be back over here. So the, 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 the title of my book uh, is Your Tragedy, so you, are, you have a sense that this is going to be something of a gloomy talk. Uh, but let me try to, to persuade you uh, uh, that that there's sort of a broad structural issues that I'm trying to deal with. So there are many in this room, and in a way I feel intimidated because you all perhaps know a lot more about the sort of details of what is currently happening than I than I do. But my my goal is to sort of set the stage in terms of what the, the broad historical trends are and what political constraints it creates within which the Eurozone is acting. So, um, I'm supposed to point where? Just there
0: only. Yeah.
1: No, but how if I want to if I want to highlight something. Oh here, then on the screen. Oh I see. Okay, got it. Okay. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. So so there are most of the slides have got have got pictures, so there are very few that have, have got words on them. And I know it's difficult to read the words, so I'm going to tell you what the basic story is. The basic story is that, at the very inception, in the Werner Committee Report, which is the original document within which the euro is set up, there was a clear understanding that a single monetary policy cannot work for divergent countries. And the thesis was, don't worry about it, because once we create a monetary union, an incomplete monetary union, we are going to ultimately have a a process by which we will reach political unity. And so the phrase that the Werner Commission Report uses is this one, uh, that, that a single currency would act as a leave-in for, for the development of political union. Another metaphor is falling forward from crisis to greater unity. So now what do I do? If I, or if I want to change the slide, I need to point there. And if I want to highlight, I point here. OK, got it. Uh, <laughs> The the sort of the, the hard work of the book was to try to create a documentation that is contemporaneous. So the a discipline that I followed in writing the book was never to look ahead and say what people said later or what happened later to try to second guess what they should have done at the time. So uh, my entire emphasis is to say to you that even at the time there were voices that were saying, that this is not a good idea, OK? So the first person who wrote a response was Nikki Calder. For those of you who know, Nicholas Calder was one of the great economists of the 20th century. And what he said is the, the, the two phrases here are crucial. He said that not only would a single currency not work for different countries, it would amplify economic divergences. A, a, an interest rate would be too strong for Italy. That interest rate is uh, too weak for, for Germany. And so it will, it will increase the divergence rather than reducing it. And he then made a very fateful comment. What he said was, I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit confused here. Yeah. What he said was <coughs> that if, it, if, as I expect, it creates economic divergence, it will create political divisions. That is, that is a very crucial point that, that Calder makes right in, in March of 1971. He says that a house divided against itself cannot stand. There's a second theme, and that theme is attributed to a uh, to Robert name who, again, some of you in this room will know, uh, was one of the most preeminent pro-Europeans of his time in in the late 60s and early 70s. Marjolaine said, the other problem with the euro is that there is a sovereignty barrier in, in, in Europe. That this idea that countries will give up their sovereignty, he said, is wishful thinking. He said, in fact, the nation state is reasserting itself. That the shadow of the war has gone and the nation state is reasserting itself and he said european leaders are obviously not ready to give up their core sovereign functions because the pro- change required is too profound so that is the setting There's, this is now we are in the middle in the in the early to mid 70s that's the debate and so i fast forward to the euro and i say it it, despite these warnings, a flawed euro was constructed. The French desperately wanted it. Cole gave it to them on German terms. And they, there are two, phrases, two aspects of this uh, that I want to highlight. One is that Cole himself understood exactly the economics of, of the euro. He, he, in a speech, he once said, monetary union is <coughs> like a like a bad speech you give on a Sunday. And you wake up uh, uh, and you get up on Monday morning and said, was I smoking something illegal? And Cole understood that. But at some point, he changes. And there's a long sort of history of why he changes. I'm going to skip over that. And in seeking the Bundestag's authorization on April 24, 1998, Kohl defines the euro now in German terms. And he says twice. He says twice to the Bundestag. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not. Yeah. He says twice to the Bundestag. Germany will not pay the bills of other member countries. That is the German political contract. The German political contract in March in in April of 1998, because of the extreme opposition within Germany to. The, uh, to the single currency could only be based on Chancellor Helmut Kohl's promise to the German people that Germany will not pay the bills for other countries. All the second guessing that is done afterwards that Germany should change requires that political contract to change. You cannot have a German chancellor change it without seeking the authorization of the German people. And Kohl had a third legacy, which is very important, which is that he created a narrative. Because he understood the contradictions of the euro, he created a narrative, which is that the euro is an instrument for peace. It was a completely fallacious uh, statement because countries that share the same currency have civil wars with each other. Countries that do not share a currency do not necessarily go to war with each other. And so the idea that Euro becomes an instrument for peace is is completely outlandish. And if anything, as Calder said, it becomes the source of division and, and, and conflict. So my book says that as a consequence, because the Euro was born in this crucible, there was no clear conception of where this is going to end up. Because the vision of political unity that was outlined was at best a very fuzzy and hazy one. And there was no path to get to it. And so I use the uh, this expression for those of you who know who this is. This is Yogi Berra, who is a very well-known, uh, was a very well-known uh, American baseball player. And he's famous for sayings like: if you reach a point, if you reach a fork in the road, take it. The future ain't what it used to be. And (laughs) this is a this is a saying, I think, of his, which is very appropriate. If you don't know where you're going, if you don't know where you're going, you end up someplace else. And that is sort of the the theme of my book: that Europe the Europeans who, who entered into the contract for the Euro did not know where they were going, and so they've ended up someplace else. Okay. So I can then fast forward. The, predict- the Calder prediction basically comes right, that the euro enhances, amplifies the divergence. And so I, I'm, I'm now in the post-crisis period. You see the divergence over here. It's a very stark divergence. You've seen these pictures. Germany begins to power ahead of uh, France and Italy, even before the crisis, that divergence gets amplified enormously. You see the same pattern in the unemployment. And a theme of my book is that when, when something like this happens, it doesn't reverse itself. In other words, the wounds in the course of an economic crisis leave scars, which reduce the ability of a country that has fallen back to recover, because the country that has fallen back has diminished investment, less R&D, the people lose work experience and skills, so the, there's sort of what economists call a hysteresis effect, what I call uh, economic scars that, that continue to, to hobble a country you see this divergence in in uh, public debt already the the, the north uh, had uh, the south had higher public debt that has increased but the most stark thing the one that's one that struck me and that becomes part of my political discussion is what is happening to the youth in the south and you see that in 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 italy something in the range of a quarter of italian italian young people between the ages of 15 to 29 are either unemployed or they are out of activity which means that they are not even registered to be unemployed and so there is a huge despair uh, amongst amongst uh, the youth in the south and when they do get jobs their jobs are very precarious on extremely short term contracts so the this is the this is the sort of soil within which the discontent with the euro then begins to increase, okay. So one last sort of uh, word, I'll just race through this slide. The divergence was predictable, it was not an accident, as I said. Um, and the the reason it was predictable is that there is a fundamental division divide in in between the north and south in governance and and uh, and uh, governance in institutions so this is the world bank these are world bank numbers you see this is a measure uh, a larger bar is a measure of better governance and in institutions you see the south over here and if anything has become worse and you see the north and this difference then translates into long-term growth prospects. So there are are academic studies which show that if you use these measures to predict long-term growth prospects, those long-term growth prospects uh, are better if governance and institutions are better. And so this is not a problem that you can solve through financial engineering. There's a long-term divergence in growth rates, and a single currency hobbles the weak and, and gives uh, ability and, and in some ways either does not influence or in, uh, actually helps the stronger countries. So the divergence continues to increase. One last slide I will show you on the divergence is this slide. This is a very important slide for me. You see over here, this is R&D in 1997, this is R&D in 2016. This is where the south is. There's one exception here, France, which I'll talk about in a second but they are essentially clustered in the 1 to 1.5% gdp range for 20 years this is where the north is this is where sweden is and this is where east asia is so we have a, we have a, 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 an enormous gap these countries cannot have low wages that are low enough to compete with poland and romania and bulgaria and they are not advanced enough to compete with with mature, advanced economies. So their long-term growth prospects are extraordinarily weak, and therefore, when a shock hits them, they suffer disproportionately. And so this is another outcome of what you're, what happens is that Germany used to trade a lot with France, and uh, to some extent with Italy. The share of German exports to France and Italy has steadily gone down. And what is interesting is that the share to Czech Republic and Hungary and Poland, which are not in the Eurozone, has gone up. The big, big increase, of course, is China. And this, this slide has, has two sort of implications. One is the different economic uh, trajectories on which these countries are operating. But also, there was a view at one time that the euro would cause countries to trade more with each other. That was always an untenable proposition. And what drives this uh, trade growth is essentially uh, the uh, prospects for trade. I'm going to just skip this uh, target to t- uh, balance chart because I want to just rush through this so here is where Calder's ghost now really begins to uh, haunt the eurozone because Calder's prediction on the economics was not not sort of brilliantly new it was it was important but not brilliantly new what Calder then said which nobody at the time said was this will also create political divisions and so uh, you see, during the, during the heart of the crisis, the country that begins to lose faith in Europe is Italy. And this, this is the moment, this is the height of the crisis, in 2011 and 12, when Chancellor Merkel de facto becomes European chancellor. She makes all the important decisions at that point. And I call this chart the dialectic because there was no other way to do it. The only person who could, in fact, do this was Chancellor Merkel, but by her very actions, she divided Europe. In, in Italy, her actions were seen as a diktat. And so you see, at that very moment, the growth of the Five Star Movement. In Germany, seeing the same actions, you see that a group of Germans begin to feel that she's doing too much for Europe. And so you see the growth of Alternative for Deutschland Party. Grows the the, the, the the formation of AFD and the growth of Five Star are exactly historically contemporaneous. They, they begin in late 2012 and gather momentum in 2013. So the, the sense of an anti-Europeanism is, is born in, in the heart of the crisis because of the economic divergence that Calder predicted. So at this point, then, I ask myself, the economics of of the single currency are naturally divisive. Are there other forces that can somehow counteract them? And here, Marjolaine's ghost. So up until now, the, the, the Calder's ghost was talking. Here, Marjolaine's ghost talks. And remember what Marjolaine had said, that the nation state is, is alive and important and, and significant, and will not fade away. In 1974, he said, the nation state is reasserting itself. And that reassertion, as the shadow of the war has, has, has receded, that reassertion, there was no reason for that reassertion to go away just because of the logic of the euro. In fact, if anything, the logic of the euro actually causes that reassertion to to amplify. And so, I first talk about what I call the myth of the Franco-German friendship. So a a large part of the book is devoted to this idea that in the popular discourse, there is a very commonly held view that, well, France and Germany will come together, and once they decide, they're, they're, you know, things will move forward. Even today, I see in the Financial Times uh, uh, an essay which says the Franco-German engine has has started firing. And I say that they, 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 if I, I, I so this, this chart is a textual analysis of all books digitized by Google. And I use this just to track the intellectual Trends uh, during this period. And they mirror very well the historical trends. So you see the notion of Franco-German friendship around the turn of the war. This is 1963, the Treaty of Friendship between Charles de Gaulle and Conrad Adenauer. And then this the, the theme of friendship begins to fade away, and around Maastricht, the theme of a relationship begins to grow. And even that then begins to fade away. And the the, the uh, forces that you see over here in the crisis are, are, are important because there's such a gross imbalance in economic power between France and Germany that the notion that therefore there is some measure of equality which will then allow them to create a congruence of interest, on the contrary, amplifies the sense of national interest. Mm-hmm. And this, this is, a, this is a, a, a chart for now from 2012, when now President Hollande is president. And he, as you may remember, is peddling this idea of eurobonds. Uh, and there's a very cute story that, that I like to tell in the December 2012 uh, uh, European Council meeting. Uh, Herman von Rompuy brought up this idea of a single, of a European budget. And Merkel turns to him and says, and where will the money come from? And Hollande then very helpfully says, don't don't, don't think of it as a European budget. Think of it as a solidarity fund. And, and Merkel says, and where will the money come from? <laughs> and this, this is not a new theme. This is a theme in the Bundestag in April of 98. When Kohl when, when said, Germany will not pay the bills for others, Merkel is essentially doing what what Kohl promised in April of 98. To blame Merkel for not doing more is to ask her to go back to the German public after 20 years and say, what Chancellor Helmut Kohl said to you, that Germany will not pay the bills for others, was wrong. A prosperous Europe is not just good for Europe, it's good in the German national interest. She has to fight a national election not just create a, a fait accompli in a, in a, in a discussion with, with, a, with a new German, uh, French president. She has to mobilize the German public to say, this is something we all need to do together. And no German chancellor has had the courage to do that. And so we have uh, President Macron come in. This, 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 uh, this theme again reemerges. Uh, this is around Macron's e- election. This is higher frequency data, which shows, again, this theme of friendship appears. This is now the 55th anniversary of the Franco-German friendship treaty. And in my reading, nothing has changed. That all the discussions about the, 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 the economic imbalance remains, remains unchanged. And as long as the economic imbalance remains unchanged, the sense of national sovereignty will remain unless there is a very important political change that occurs within each nation first before there is a a European political change. So finally, I have one last theme uh, on uh, on social democracy. Can social democrats play the role uh, of creating as a, a unified Europe through a sense of common values. And again, I, fi- I, I, I report here something that's well known, that social democracy has been on a decline for many reasons. And the sort of intellectual laziness and exhaustion of the social democrats in Germany is in these tweets. So uh, Martin Schulz uh, tweets uh, sometime, I think in 2000 and early 2018, to the December 2017, where he says, why are we going to create a European constitution? It's such a, a historical view. 2005, France and, 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 and the Netherlands rejected the constitution with such overwhelming majority. And to, to suddenly say that that's, that's sort of the solution for Europe is, is, is either being cynical or being completely uh, completely naive. And you then have a German finance minister who says, it doesn't matter the party. Whatever the party, a German finance minister is first and foremost a German finance minister. And that is correct. Peer Steinbock acted in exactly the same way as Olaf Scholz is acting. There's no difference because a German finance minister does not, a German political party does not have the courage to campaign on the basis of an obligation to Europe. Okay, I'm almost done. i just add one last set of slides which says that not only is Europe divided, it's also a declining continent. And a a, declining continent makes compromises harder. And so you see over here the share of world GDP. Uh, Germany increased in the late 19th century and then has been steadily on a decline. France began its decline in 1870. And this is, in this period of decline, this is when the euro is, is, is uh, consummated. And this is the crisis. You have seen these pictures before, of pictures like this before. You see that the United States recovered much faster than the, than the euro area did. And not only did the US uh, recover faster, Uh, than the Euro area, but did much better than it did during the Great Depression. The Euro area did even poorly compared to the Great Depression. And this is my last picture that I want to show you. This slide that we have seen on, uh, in the the past 100 years, the the declining continent, that is set to increase. The pace of that decline is about to accelerate. And just focus uh, for a minute, if you will, on these numbers. In 1995, this is the level of Korean patents in the US Patent Office. And this is Germany. It's it's four times the number. Today, this is where Korea is, and this is where Germany is. Look at France. France, although it does a lot of R&D, France has been essentially flat for 20 years. Look at where Italy is. If you compare uh, Korea and and Italy, Korea and Italy were identical in 1995. Look where Korea is, look where Italy is. And now you see the emergence of China. And I can can almost guarantee you that in the next 20 years, this divergence will increase even more because the East Asian nations are better educating their young, they're investing more in their future than the Europeans are. And the world will belong in the next two decades to those who are investing in their future on this massive scale. Therefore, a continent that is declining and divided makes it extremely hard to have compromises. And the euro in that context creates ties that bind too tightly. And there will be a crisis, and when the next crisis comes, the ability to handle the next crisis will be weaker. Europe is still rich, so it, it will get through one or two major crises like it has up until now. But if Italy has a crisis, as my book forecasts it will, then all bets are off at that point. So I end over here with, with I want to show you the cover of my book. I hope you will get a chance to see it. And the tragedy is, that the warnings were sounded. And it need not have been. The euro came through a very narrow historical window. There was no good reason for the euro. It's a tragedy, not in the sense that somebody was cynical or somebody was deliberately uh, trying to undermine anybody. But at a very crucial moment in history, A set of people made mistakes, they were frail, and they they created an outcome which is extremely hard to reverse. Mm -hmm. That is the Euro tragedy.
0: Thank you very much, Ashoka. I think that uh, the one thing that will certainly agree with you is that uh, unless we ask some very uncomfortable questions, we will not be able to make progress. And you're asking a lot of very uncomfortable questions, which I think is very interesting and, and very useful. I, I, I hope that in the course of the discussion, we will be able to have your views also on what to do next, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that would be, uh, be an important thing. I mean, it's, it's one thing identifying the cause, but the cure is also important. Um, and certainly the crowd here will be very interested in hearing that. But before you do that, um, yeah. Guntram.
2: Some- well, um, let me, uh, Let me start by thanking Ashoka for coming and for presenting his book. And uh, of course, let me also say that the book is a wonderful book um, that I very much recommend reading. Um, And as I think Maria just said, it asks a lot of, and it puts a lot of uncomfortable uh, points out there. So look, I've been reading a lot of texts on the Euro, but I think this is one of the texts w- which keeps me awake at night, right? Most texts don't keep me awake at night because I know the stuff. But here is a lot of uh, sort of stuff, to deep stuff to reflect on in there. And so, uh, so I very much recommend everybody to, uh, to read the book. Um, now, <clears throat> there's many issues on which, on which one can comment. Um, and I thought I will just sort of go through a few slides and sort of highlight a few points that I thought deserve deserve more discussion. Um, I don't agree with everything in the book, but I certainly do think that the book raises the right questions. So let me let me start with um, with the euro course euro. Um, and I, I think on the right you see uh, a young a young person bringing down the Berlin Wall. Uh, you can guess who that young person is. Um, but I think what it what it is it is a it is a story about. Um, see you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so so it is a story uh, that essentially starts with, with German uh, Germany unification and where, uh, Kohl um, of course uh, did think about. Um, uh, and did realize that after German reunification, uh, Germany would be um, too big and too small for Europe. It would be too big to dominate the continent, but too small to really lead it. And his his view at the time was, uh, well, the the right approach is to be permanently bound in uh, in the euro um, and in a monetary union, and therefore eventually, you know, uh, be, uh, be, uh, be in this European setting, um, uh, Germany bound in Europe as a guarantee for peace as Ashoka also clearly clearly explained uh, um, the view. Now, um, his view of how things would evolve uh, was probably not, um, not realistic or perhaps he was also totally unrealistic in his views of how it would evolve. He expressed um, in 2011 uh, his misgivings with um, the current German Chancellor, Angela Merkel. Um, uh, in one of his last interviews, he says, look, I mean, Angela Merkel uh, doesn't have a compass and you know doesn't go uh, uh, where uh, I thought we should be going to. But in a sense, it was a bit of a disingenuous interview in the sense that uh, when the euro was founded, and Ashoka describes that quite well, uh, Kohl never really accepted that um, conservative Germany didn't warm up uh, to the idea of sharing fiscal sovereignty. Um, and um, that German conservative, uh, uh, the German conservative establishment actually never really liked the idea of sharing monetary sovereignty. and Kohl really pushed it through against the will of uh, a lot of the conservatives in, in Germany. And basically the dilemma has been created at that stage because um, as we all know, as economists, um, monetary and fiscal sovereignty are intrinsically linked and at some level become the same because monetary and fiscal authorities are at some level just two arms of the same government. Um, and so, so, I think the intrinsic tension uh, tension is there from the beginning, right? And so, 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 coal, uh, didn't didn't really accept that and and pushed pushed through the euro against the will of large parts of the establishment, um, uh, but promised them there would be no fiscal risk sharing whatsoever. And so, I think this is this is basically the start, and you know where. Uh, um, I think the book starts, and I think rightly so. I, uh, so, so I, I, I probably have have little, little uh, misgivings with, with 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 what Ashoka is saying there. Now, then, <clears throat> Ashoka talks a lot about um, the Italian fault line. Um, and what I do here is I, I wonder um, whether the Italian fault line is primarily a result of the euro, or whether the euro just aggravates the issue. And you know, my 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 view here is the view that I take here is that um, Italy uh, has been in secular decline uh, for. Um, Four decades. Um, uh, So this predates the euro membership. These are ten-year growth windows, real GDP per capita growth, Um, and you know it's been going down significantly before the euro, um, and has not been a success story before the euro. So, so in a sense, I wouldn't blame the the euro for. uh, a lot of the problems that Italy has now their major national political problems bad justice system education system corruption credit allocation problems and so on I mean we all know this um, and in all fairness we should also say Italian employment now is is higher than what it was in in 98 and the unemployment rate is actually lower now than it was in 98 so so um, I think I think it's a bit um, too harsh to put, uh, put so much emphasis here on the Euro. Um, I think there's very deep uh, national problems. Now having said that, um, once there is a problem, of course it is a problem of the Eurozone and the Eurozone monetary policy can only to an extent accommodate uh, what would be needed um, uh, to, uh, to boost investment and so on in, in Italy. And you know the political tensions in Italy are political tensions around um, uh, basically the scope for fiscal policy um, in connection with the monetary policy space that is given to italy and so 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 um, i think what the euro does is it constrains uh, constraints uh, national policy making fiscal policy making in very severe terms um, and it is against that that um, citizens um, of course rebel and um, uh, I think that's, in a sense, the, the, the real issue. The, the real issue is not that a euro devaluation or something like this would dramatically help, um, help Italy. Um, on the contrary, um, it is the fact that um, with your own currency, you basically control the deficit, and that allows you Uh, to uh, solve some of your domestic distributional problems. So so dropping out of the Euro would make the country very much poorer, uh, of course, I mean, but even, let's say, even if it hadn't been in the Euro, I mean, devaluation basically makes you poorer um, but it gives you some scope to solve some uh, internal distributional uh, distributional issues which currently have to be solved differently and that's very difficult in a context where you basically have no growth and so I think that's that's a bit the, 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 the tragedy the tragedy of Italy at this stage now um, my third slide is on the euro area underperformance and um, which Ashoka basically confronts the data very much with with, uh, with the U.S. and I, I guess what I want to show here is that this story is really a story of two thousand eight to thirteen. I mean, since two thousand thirteen, so since the recovery uh, is ongoing in the eurozone, the eurozone and the U.S. actually perform quite similarly. I mean, so it's not it's not that. Um, it's not that um, the uh, Eurozone uh, is doing dramatically worse. On the contrary, we are basically on the same growth trage- trajectory. But in that critical period, 2008 to 13, uh, we really do much worse than uh, than the Eurozone. And so let me zoom in a little bit on this period, which of course was the sort of the critical Eurozone period. I think there were severe monetary policy mistakes. Um, those could have happened without the euro. So I think bad decisions are being taken, and I would uh, postulate that decisions such as the interest rate rise in in 2011 uh, had much more to do with ideology than with um, country, uh, different views of different countries. I mean, the eurozone as a whole was in a recession, and uh, the uh, the chief economist at the time, Jürgen Stark, was uh, just I think uh, in in severe misjudgment. So this is this is basically not a, a flaw of the euro to my mind. Now the second uh, uh, issue is the delayed and fragmented dealing with, with the banking problems. Um, as you know, there were uh, uh, these things happen uh, outside of monetary unions. I mean, we we've seen the Japanese case where um, banking problems were resolved with uh, severe delay costing a lot to the Japanese um, uh, society. Uh, but I would argue there was also some Eurozone dimension. And the Eurozone dimension here was that we were basically taking a decision and Per Steinberg uh, with Merkel took that decision that everybody will deal with this on its own. And that meant we never took a systemic approach uh, to the Eurozone banking problems. Um, and only resolved that really in a decision um, in 2012, um, where the banking union project started, which actually helps quite a bit uh, to my mind um, in resolving uh, resolving some of the banking problems. The, the single supervisor is probably, uh, together with the ESM, the single most important um, policy innovation um, that happened in the in the in the period of the crisis. Now the third point is the absence the absence of a lender of last resort. Um, uh, so this is really uh, a design failure of the euro, um, and it was only resolved with, uh, with OMT, um, and uh, I think that was absolutely critical, OMT. But in the absence of the lender of last resort, we did have um, significant... Uh, uh overreactions in financial markets um, and therefore then also overreactions um, on the fiscal austerity side. so the uh, uh, consolidation in Italy, the fiscal austerity in Italy in 2011 um, and 2012 uh, in many respects uh, could have been avoided um, if um, and the double dip therefore could have been avoided if uh, the, the euro system, had had in place already um, a lender of last resort. So here is a design failure, but I think to a significant de- uh, extent that has been addressed. Now, there was a delay in uh, quantitative easing, um, and um, there my main argument would be that it is actually also a design failure of the euro, because when the euro was conceived, we did not think QE would exist, right? And so so the treaties and you know the way the ECB was set up and designed, was uh, not catering. Not we just didn't have the features to doing. We had to invent quantitative easing, and that took took a long time. And the way it's done is a very peculiar way of do, of doing uh, quantitative easing. Um, uh, the ECB president now, and I show that in my next, next slide, says very clearly, well, this is now a standard tool, which of course depends on political support, but it is a standard tool which didn't exist, and we didn't know how to do it. And so I think they are uh, indeed uh, a design failure that was, uh, I would say, largely addressed. Now, I talked about the excessive austerity in Italy and others, but you know I think to a significant extent, that was a reaction to the... Uh, significant uh, overreaction in financial markets that then drove panicked political reactions, uh, um, driving austerity and contributing to the to the double dip, and of course the absence of a euro area fiscal stance when monetary policy is at the zero low bound is a, is a key issue, um, and there's I mean it remains a design failure, and we basically have no way of no way of dealing with this um, at this stage. Um, the solutions that helped us get out of this, and since 2013 have, uh, have a good recovery, um, uh, depend essentially on the ECB. Um, I mentioned uh, Draghi was just re-emphasizing that quantitative easing remains part of the toolbox. OMT is, is and remains central. The banking supervision is at the ECB and has helped. And I would say also the BRD and the Single Resolution Board and the fund do make a positive difference. I mean, they are not the end of the story, but at least we have made some significant progress here and have a a better framework of dealing with banking problems than than we have before. But we haven't finished this job, especially the deposit insurance hasn't been done. Um, now, I, I agree with Ashoka that the sovereignty issue still remains a crucial uh, issue, the OMT-ESM uh, fix uh, for this sovereignty issue is probably the only possible solution at this stage. Um, it's a compromise that weaker countries find too restraining, there's um, an Omising, and the stronger countries find, find too generous. So I, I, I think that's probably a sign that it's a compromise. Um, and um, I guess the question now of going forward is whether the stronger countries will uh, sort of fulfill Coldstream, and perhaps it was not Coldstream, I don't know. Uh, uh, to uh, move politically closer together and weaker countries, whether they will address their deeper uh, structural weaknesses. And I think that's especially Italy that that we have to think about because many of the other weaker countries have actually done quite a bit and have addressed uh, a large part of their their issues. Uh, For now, no willingness to shift is visible, um, and the euro area will therefore remain fragile. Um, But uh, to conclude, I would say it's a wonderful uh, book uh, focusing on the right issues. Um, It's skeptical on many technical and administrative fixes, and rightly so. Um, But I think Ashoka proposes um, a solution, and you didn't talk much about the solution, so we can discuss that a bit now, uh, where, you know, countries should be let free. Uh, which I think is basically an illusion as as fiscal sovereignty um, in some of these countries is already lost. And so basically um, letting free uh, ultimately means, uh, to my mind, becomes inconsistent with Euro membership. Um, And perhaps to sort of end on the more philosophical um, uh, baseball uh, uh, quote, Uh, Europe ended someplace else. I think that's that's right, but I think history remains in the making and um, the main responsibility uh, I think at this stage remains of course more with the stronger countries who have the scope to act. Um, And I think the stronger countries in a sense are seeing Uh, That um, you know, with given given all the external challenges that Ashoka describes, and that I think we have also many times uh, uh, emphasized. I mean, be it the R and D story, or be it uh, you know the growth, the rise of China, but also more recently the breakdown of G seven and so on. I mean, all of these things uh, certainly add to the balance of those forces that um, think, well, we actually need to fix some of these issues. And we should fix them, and we should move ahead. Uh, and so that's why I'm not totally pessimistic, and perhaps not as quite as pessimistic um, as, as, as Ashoka is. But let's say the young, the young teenager that was contributing to the breaking down of the wall um, uh, is, is not that young anymore, uh, but still tries to be a little bit optimistic about the future of Europe. And um, I think. Um, I mean, we we have made some some significant progress, as I've shown on some of the issues, but some progress has not been achieved. And yes, you're right. On the fiscal, uh, we have moved only a little bit uh, through the OMT, basically. Thank you.
1: Thank
0: you very much. Do you have a few? It's okay. Don't worry about the time. Can you? uh...
1: So so. I'm going to respond uh, to to at least a few points that Guntram made. Um, uh, Guntram, will you put back your slide, the 2008 to 13 slide? So, so the point. Just this is a more technical point, but I think it's very important to understand the the difference over here. No, the this slide yeah. So a theme of my book is policy wounds leave scars okay so the economists call it hysteresis and what what i mean by scars is that if 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 i have a trauma and i, I leave it untreated for an extended period of time then that scar not only uh, is uh, has has sort of uh, a temporary effect it has a longer run effect so um, if my stomach has an injury, then the scar that forms in my stomach uh, has a long-term effect in how my stomach functions. And economists call this process hysteresis. And every study shows that when a, rec- when a recession lasts too long, the recovery is weak. And so what Kundram is showing is exactly that. This is, not, this is not an argument, Guntram, for saying that the, the uh, Euro area has done as well, or can do as well as, as America. What this is saying is that even though for five years, the Eurozone fell back, it is now only growing at the same rate as America is. It, if, if, if there was a genuine recovery, the falling back would have been clawed back by a faster growth. And it is that faster growth that then has to be compared. If, 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 so uh, if, if I fall, then if I, if I don't bounce back, then I have permanently lost those five years of growth. And I have then also lost during that period investment, R&D, which create a long-term growth handicap. And remember, a lot of this comes from Germany. As you take Germany out, the picture looks even worse than this. The more important sort of uh, economic themes of your uh, statement, and look, this this now is, is a genuine open question, Okay, One way of saying it is there were a lot of policy mistakes, and there were design flaws. The policy mistakes, perhaps we can learn from them and not make them again. Some of the design flaws we've corrected. Therefore, if a crisis occurs in the future, we'll handle it better. So what I do on the ECB is I ask myself the question, what is the consistent behavior of the ECB? And I I start in in the recession of 2001. And already in 2001, the ecb is much tighter than the federal reserve in terms of the initial the, the crisis that follows in the wake of the tech bubble the ecb then remains too tight in the great recession the july 7 2011 interest rate hike i consider the most catastrophic error policy error made by anyone during the great uh, during the conduct of the great recession the delay of the qe the consistent pattern over here is that the ECB is not accountable to anyone and because it is not accountable to anyone it has the luxury of being hijacked by ideological and national interests and so even if even if the the, the learning has occurred the question is Will it continue to be hijacked by ideological and and uh, national interests in in the conduct of a future crisis? That is the principal question as far as the q e is concerned so uh, President Mario Draghi announces that QE is being tapered, and then a few days later at Sintra he says. Maybe not, maybe we can bring it back. That is historically exactly the wrong thing to do. The Japanese would do that. They would say, well, you know, we don't really need it anymore. We will come back to it when we need it. If you do that, markets don't believe you. Markets don't believe you because they say, well, they stopped prematurely the first time. Why do we know that they will continue the next time? And so the if the, the lesson from QE, the big lesson from QE, is that you have to do it big, in a sustained way, over a long period of time. The Americans did it from December 2008 to October 2015. The Japanese did not do it right, and so suffered and fell into a deflation trap. The ECB brought it in too late and has withdrawn it way too early before. The, 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 Italian interest, the Italian inflation rate is something in the range of 0.5 percent. Italy is essentially in a low trap. I'm not saying that the ECB can solve Italy's problem. That is that is the original sin of the of the of the single currency, that ECB cannot solve the problem. But to declare victory and say that the inflation problem is solved, because German inflation is 1.6% and Italian inflation is uh, 0.6% or 0.5%, that's not solving the problem. What all that does it is it widens the real interest rate differentials across countries. The divergences continue. I'll say one last word, uh, and then I, I want to stop because I do want to uh, people to have opportunity to ask on OMT. So, Guntram and I have had this discussion for many years, so he recognizes what I'm going to say. Uh, OMT is not a lender of last resort function. OMT is a conditional lending program. OMT is just, is a sort of super IMF. Uh, What does that mean? A, A lender of last resort, a true lender of last resort does not ask questions. So you need the money, the money's here, and delivers the money on call. Because the lender of last resort's function is essentially that there's a liquidity problem no matter what, my job is to correct the liquidity problem. What does the IMF do? IMF says, look, you guys, you've, you've messed up for all these years. You need to get your house in order. Come to us. Talk to us. Spend three months, six months discussing a program. Let's agree on it. There's a battle. Sometimes it takes longer. Then there's a program. It's politically divisive there's a program. That's exactly how the OMT app works. For Italy to go into an OMT, to, for Italy to be eligible for OMT, it would, need to first have a, it would need to first have a program with the ESM. That program, negotiating that program on the size that Italy would need, I don't know how long it'll take. It could take months so the idea that omt is on tap and therefore there is a willingness for omt to come in at any moment i think that the beauty of the omt is that it works beautifully if it's not called on to to, to work so the 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 uh, irish bank guarantee the irish in 2008 said nobody all banks We will repay your creditors. And for about three days, it worked like magic. Everybody said the Irish sovereign is going to repay us. We don't need to worry. And then they said, oops. What if the Irish sovereign cannot pay us? And then it went to hell. Essentially, at that moment, the guarantee broke. The OMT is better positioned because the ECB can print money in the the last call. But the, 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 it's not the technical ability of the of the ECB that will be in question if the OMT is tested. It will be the political constraint within which the OMT is asked be asked to be operated. And the question at that moment will be that if the ECB extends OMT to Italy based on a program which is imperfect, what if the Italians default? Who is going to bear those costs? That's going to be a political decision, not a technical decision. And so you always come back, in the the context of the euro, to the fundamental fact that there is no political contract that that envelops this operation. There is no political contract which says, your interest is my long-term interest. Therefore, I'm the state of Connecticut in America. You're Alabama and Mississippi. I give you 5% of my GDP every year. I don't think about it. I don't get up wake, I don't wake up every morning saying to myself, oops, these Alabamas are taking my money away. I see it as part of my obligation, and some don't, that there are rich Americans and poor Americans, and I pay taxes so that some, some poorer Americans can, can uh, benefit from that. I don't identify them by Alabama or, or, West, or West Virginia or Mississippi. That is the nature of a political contract. It is within that political contract that a fiscal and monetary system works. And so every device like OMT, fundamentally always hits that sovereignty barrier. And so the question is, if there is a real crisis, will these instruments hold the test, the political test? And that is where we don't know the answers, and that is what we have to watch and see. I mean,
2: just to say, I don't disagree with that point. I mean, I I think what it is, it is a a fix and an attempt to have a sort of political contract. And it is a temporary political contract. I mean, OMT is supported and was supported uh, by the German Chancellor and was defended in the German public um, including the finance ministry um, uh, against a lot of a lot of op- opposition to um, uh, coming from from members of parliament and so on so there is sort of a first attempt of a political contract now where it will go we don't know I think I, I entirely agree with you and it certainly falls well short of a real joint treasury which would be the more elegant uh, solution, but it is an attempt to solve something that wasn't there before, and that has tremendously helped stabilize the situation. But I agree with you that I mean the long-term, the long-term sustainability of this is very, uh, very unclear, and depends very much on on the politics of the future. Perhaps the other quick point I wanted wanted to uh, to react to is um, the um, is the uh, um, you know the, the the political contract, and you know I think you're right. Um, what is what is the political contract? I guess the, the point we should be fair about is that the the political contract in our societies is questioned not just in europe i mean this is i think a a a very far-reaching phenomenon that we are seeing and you said said quite easily i'm ready to pay taxes in the u.s for a poor person somewhere else well i'm wondering how many taxes are actually being paid for for which people in the u.s i mean so so inequality and so on are much bigger issues now what is uh, issues than in Europe. But of course we are right that perhaps there is a less of a state dimension. I mean, that's that's the difference. But the political contract of redistribution resources is being questioned everywhere in the West. I mean, so I think we, we have a much broader problem than just the Eurozone problem here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not going to on that
1: we'll... questions and then we can, yeah. Let's
0: do it. <clears throat> Alicia, Francesco, please collect the gentleman there. Uh,
3: Alicia first, here. here. Uh, Ashoka, first of all, thanks very much for this uh, thoughtful um, account of what's happening in Europe. I must say that I don't disagree too much with your assessment in as, the, in as far as what has gone wrong. However, I think there is an issue with the counterfactual. In your, in your presentation, meaning would Europe have been better without the euro? Because you know, it's easy to say things are not going very well, but how would they have gone without the euro? And if I read you correctly, it means at least less divergence. That's, I don't know whether you will agree, you'll answer in a minute. But to me, the issue is not only divergence, it's really all about the secular decline, which is not only Europe, I'm afraid the West. You said it very clearly. Uh, It it might have been more accentuated in in Europe more recently because maybe exactly this tightening of countries that were divergent. But on the other hand, Europe has also helped many of these countries. If you think of the country, I come from Spain. I mean, all of the internationalization of these corporates and banks was helped by the euro because they could finance those in a currency that they wouldn't have ever dreamed of it is just one example i could give you so many so i i i think it's a little bit like twisted towards what is negative about the euro i think the euro is a is is an extremely useful tool the more so if you didn't happen to have a strong currency let's face it
1: extremely useful tool for what
3: for to actually to (coughs) have corporate banks that can diversify the risk away from their own economy. This is one one which which countries in Europe, which were stronger and richer, could do with a stronger currency, which we couldn't do. Now, the point is you need to get there. I mean, you need to be able to get there. And And the issue to me is that getting there has nothing to do with the euro. So you showed... And you mentioned about education in Asia. I've been living in Asia for 13 years, so I can't agree more. That has nothing to do with the euro. So to me, the structural problems that you are showing are more things that could be solved if we wanted to, independently on the currency, independently on the currency. And I, I just wonder whether we shouldn't focus on that, rather than, because we are here already. I mean, exactly your point. I mean, once you are there, think about the cost of undoing what you've done, yeah? I mean, I happen to have been calculating this cost for a bank in Spain a while ago, and I'm telling you, and it's not only for Spain, it's also for Germany, let's face it. Your net creditor, yeah, of assets that one day could be, yeah, denominated in a very weak currency, so I'm sorry to say that this is of no interest to anybody. So once we're there, we like it or not, you know, now, the thing is, what are the structural uh, issues that will not stop the decline of the West? Because this is not going to be stopped. But we could decelerate the decline. Yeah? We could try to reduce that, that wedge that you mentioned with Asia and with other regions that will in, uh, unavoidably grow more than us. But the question is, by how much and how far are we declining? And I would include the US in this pack, I'm sorry to say. So the structural part is not only Europe. We can say we have our own additional issues, but many of the things you showed would not be different across regions, across individuals in the US. It's just that you're a nation. So Are we ready to be a nation? I guess everyone will say no. I'm sorry to hear that because I'd love Europe to be a nation, but that's a different topic. But point is, a lot of these structural issues have nothing to do with the euro. Yeah. That's one questions. The gentleman behind you. Can you pass the microphone there?
0: Yeah. If you... Okay. And Francesco. Yes. yes. Maybe a question can which is
4: yes. A question which is uh, maybe linked can to you your you? Ah Mihai Macovei, I work in the European Commission. Thank you. So I also took from your presentation the decline in the productive structure of the southern countries of the Eurozone and the longer term structural weakness. Do you think that if we move towards removing the flaws in the Euro construction, i.e. lender of last resort, transfers, fiscal transfers, would this help these productivity and structural issues in the South or exacerbate them even further?
0: Okay, so this is the question that uh, actually uh, Okay, so there are two questions here, Francesco. We'll have a second round (laughs) of Francesco here at the front.
5: Thank you very much, Francesco. I will start from the last slide of your uh, presentation, the one with the cover. Uh, And in order to be convinced that you got the title right, uh, that the euro is a tragedy, um, I would need to be convinced on three issues. One, I think Alicia has already uh, mentioned. What is causality between the euro and all the problems uh, that you identify? I don't see it. Maybe I see that your book is uh, pretty thick. Maybe you devote many pages uh, to explaining why the euro caused all those problems. Uh, I'm curious to read those pages because uh, I I find it very difficult to think that a monetary issue caused so many structural uh, problems uh, as uh, uh, as Alicia uh, said. The second issue for which I would like to find an answer in your thick book is the euro, according to Eurobarometer, is supported by some 70 uh, two-thirds of the population in the euro area. So this is not a kind of a small group of frail people 30 years ago. This is, according to Eurobarometer, a large majority uh, of the people in the euro area. They don't share your view that the euro is a tragedy. How do you explain this difference of opinions between you and 70% uh, of the euro area uh, population? Uh, My my third um, point is, it's a trivial statement, I'm sorry, that uh, we have a common currency without uh, a common state. The relevant question is, are we moving towards political union? Have we moved over the last uh, 30 years to political union? Uh, are we continue moving in that uh, direction? That, to me, is a relevant question. Thank you. Thank, thank
0: you. Let's go. take the question here. Just behind you, Francesco.
6: Um, thank we'll you have... for your presentation. My name is Moni. I'm a former colleague of the European Commission, and I'm following very closely the evolution of the Italian economy uh, here, being in Brussels. I fully agree with your assessment, saying that the uh, Italian problems uh, uh, are uh, not uh, related, not entirely related to the euro. Uh, we have in Italy a problem of uh, competitiveness, a problem of productivity, which dates back to the 70s and even the 80s. Very much related to the fact that the Italian industrial system is based upon uh, very small SMEs, uh, very reluctant to invest, and very fragile. And uh, traditionally, very much assisted by central government uh, through a number of different funds. So we need to see also the the structure of the real economy uh, in order to understand what are the weaknesses, uh, the structural weaknesses of a country. Now, um, uh, we have a new government in Italy uh, with a a social contract, uh, with a a program. Uh, In the past, the idea was uh, to support the supply. To support the supply side, meaning uh, making, adv- I mean, supporting in- in- industries, companies, reducing taxation, and uh, try to uh, relaunch uh, uh, production and investment, research, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This uh, policy did not uh, work entirely according to our uh, uh, in- initial estimations. Now the idea is uh, to support demand. To support the demand, meaning, uh, as you said, to support uh, the uh, purchasing power of people, and also to increase the purchasing power of people. So we are talking about uh, an internal, I mean, a demand-oriented economy, not so much export-oriented economy. And this is why it is very important for the Italian government today to support essentially Central Italy and Southern Italy, which are not uh, included in the uh, Germanic or German uh, economic cycle, as it is the case for the industry in Northern Italy. So the idea is how to uh, support the demand in the most fragile part of the of the country. Now, the euro uh, is the euro the, uh, the the currency which may allow the uh, regeneration of the Italian economy in central Italy and in southern Italy. I do not know, uh, given that of course there we have the problem of competitiveness and productivity, and also this high unemployment, as you have mentioned, particularly among the young people. Uh, What we did not estimate, what we did not foresee in 2001 when we introduced the Euro was the fact that China joined joined the WTO and China became, uh, you know, the big world competitor. Now, in Southern Italy, the the, the salaries of the young people are less than the salaries of the Chinese in Shanghai. So we have uh, in Southern Italy uh, situations which uh, are uh, very much similar to the situations in Shanghai. But, uh, I mean, once again, in Shanghai they work 40, 40 or 50 hours a day. In, uh, uh, I'm saying just uh, in, in southern <laughs> Italy, they work much less. And you don't have the innovation, you don't have the push. Okay. Can uh, the European yeah. budget support? Uh, can, Euro, can Europe uh, uh, try to, I mean, uh, to transfer of, uh, uh, you know, financial transfers, etc., etc.? can support? the uh, uh, reinvigoration of, of the economy in southern Italy but also in other
1: parts of the okay. Mediterranean countries which me face just, the uh, same problems. Just, there's one common thread in all the questions. Let me just yeah. set that to rest for right away because otherwise it's going to make this discussion very hard. The fact that countries have long-term problems and cannot summon the political will to deal with their long-term problems is not a, not due to the euro. That, that this book says many times. It recognizes that some of these long-term weaknesses are very much part of weaknesses in all, uh, in all advanced countries it recognizes also that the same social divisions that we see in europe today with a group of people being left behind on the wrong side of globalization is true in 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 certainly in the united states and well beyond the eurozone in europe so the backdrop that there is a secular decline of of advanced transatlantic countries, where the forces of globalization have a very unequal impact on countries, is is very well recognized by this book. And no one is saying that that decline in, 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 in Europe is due to the euro, okay? Just let's take that off the table. What does the euro do? The euro amplifies those problems. How does the euro amplify this problem? So take your Spanish example. What is the counterfactual for Spain? Spain would probably not have had the property bubble, very likely would not have had the property bubble it had without the euro the property bubble in in spain is almost directly traceable to the cheap money that became available after the euro was formed in 2001 2002 2003 therefore the big big growth and then the sharp fall that is very much a product of the euro The more serious problem of the euro is that at a moment a country is in crisis, it hobbles the country. It hobbles the country because a single monetary policy cannot help the crisis country to the same extent as it's helping the countries not in crisis. So take take Italy. Italy is a very simple example. Between 1970 and 1999, the lira went from 200 lira to the Deutschmark to a peak of 1,200 before settling somewhere around 1,000. Essentially, the lira lost something of the order of 85 to 90 percent of its value. This is a period within which, in which Italy has positive productivity growth. So even with positive productivity growth, declining but positive productivity growth, Italy needed the crutch of a depreciating lira. This is not, not, I'm not saying that this is the euro's fault, but what happens after the euro comes is that the euro was introduced on January 1st 1999 at 1.18 to the dollar. Traded first in Sydney at 5 o'clock in the morning before European markets opened. The euro today is 1.16 or 1.17. The lira, which is effectively the euro, has remained unchanged for 20 years during a period within which Italians, for whatever reason, of their own making, have grown at a negative productivity growth of half percent a quarter percent a year. So Italy is caught in a Eurozone trap. It, is, it, it already has extremely low potential to grow. And it has a monetary policy that is always too tight for Italy. That is the counterfactual. What is the counterfactual? Suppose Italy had its lira. Suppose there had been no euro. What Trump said is exactly what would have happened, that the currency would have depreciated, Because the Italians would not have been able to get their act together. Currency would have depreciated by 70, 80%. Italians would have become poorer. As they are becoming poorer, the big difference, and this is the crucial policy difference that arises, is that the Italian crisis would have been diffused little by little with every lira devaluation. No current, so having spent almost 11 years at the IMF, having done some of these academic studies myself, a a country that has a floating exchange rate does not, almost never has a, a financial crisis. Because this is Milton Friedman's 1953 insight, the exchange rate will depreciate exchange rate depreciation is not a crisis. It it does not create a moment in which there is a panic because the sudden stop problem arises only when there's a fixed exchange rate. And so Italy would have gradually become poorer and Italy's problems would have been Italian problems. Today, because Italy is in the Eurozone and it's caught in this trap, Italy's problems are Europe's problems. And Italy's problems are Europe's problems, therefore potentially the world's problems. That is the difference. So I'm not saying that the euro made it worse in some sense that educational systems in Italy would have been better uh, but for the euro. But I am saying that for a country that is already so... Unable to deal with its own domestic problems, it creates a further handicap, which then does not allow it the macroeconomic breathing space to, to, to grow out of its problems every time there is a crisis, which creates more scars, which lower potential growth for a longer period of time. That's sort of the, the, the general answer to the question. On, on the question, Is there a movement towards political progress? The answer is no. The answer is, in fact, if anything, the divisions have become deeper, and those divisions will continue to become deeper. On the Eurobarometer, uh, the the particular survey that you're talking about is a a sort of hokey survey. It sort of shows a flat 70% for the last so many years. I look at, even even in the surveys I look at, How do people trust the ECB? I look at how people are voting in elections. That's what I look at. Because that is to me a a much better metric of the degree of anti-Europeanism or pro-Europeanism. Okay, we
0: have time for two more questions, but I'm I'm hoping that you're gonna give us uh, the two advices that you want us to take away. What do we do next? Before the end of this, I would like you to give us an answer to that. So, the questions, uh, I think uh, Andrea also had a question. Right? Okay, well, you we have to make them very quick. So, here first, and then Andrea, and then in the middle. Please, very quick questions so we can end on time. Thank, yeah, thank you. you very
7: much. Martin Lach, European Fiscal Board. Now, I just have a, a comment on, I will call it, the over packaging or the assumed uh, historical uh, forces uh, uh, underlying your, your narrative. Okay. I have not read the book yet, so I can only rely on, on the presentation that you gave a minute ago. And in the presentation, to me, you gave the impression that the the whole text of the drama had already been written in the 90s. Yeah. So it was. Yeah. You, you read, I you, you totally read, disagree yeah. with this deterministic and yeah. uh, uh, deterministic view. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that uh, this the text the text has not been written. At, at least not the ninth uh, act in, in, in the 1990s. I very much hope, and I'm convinced, that uh, the text of this drama, or, or maybe even a comedy, is being is being written uh, as we as we go on. Yeah. Now you have chosen a, a very prominent economist, uh, Nicholas Caldo, uh, as someone who sort of saw through the veil of the present. And Anticipated the demise of the of the euro. I'm sure, although I have not done the research, that there have been other, maybe less prominent uh, pundits that uh, anticipated a different outcome.
0: Thank you, Martin. <laughs> Andre, and then two more questions here. André here. And then in the middle, and we will stop it there.
4: Thank you. Um, thanks they, for the for thanks for the presentation, and also thanks to. Thank Buntram, for the very nice, uh, very nice comments. I haven't read the, the book, uh, the book either, uh, but I, I want to take what you said very seriously, and in a sense, I want to take partly your side, and debate with some of my economist colleagues and friends. Uh, I took from your uh, from your presentation, which was a very political presentation, Yeah, uh, I think that is indeed the way we need to look at this. And if I understand correctly what Guntram said when he said, you know, this is keeping me awake uh, at night, mm. it's not because I suppose it's the economics mm. that is keeping us uh, awake at night, because indeed the economics... The people in the room here—they can solve that. Problem. Quite right. Okay, so we know how to solve the problem from the technical viewpoint. Mm. Okay, it's not so complicated mm. at this stage, especially you know after all those those mm. crises. What is harder is indeed the political issue, and I think where I would agree with you, and I, that's where I disagree with economists: is this counterfactual—it's something that citizens do not care about and do not understand. Mm. This is only something that we economists. Mm. understand, at least in part, the, the, the counterfactual nature mm. of issues. And we want to, obviously, as economists, we want to make this analysis. Mm. And that, that is correct for us. Mm. But we cannot convince citizens that with or without, it would be this and it would be that. Where I think I agree with you is that once we created an economic and monetary union, well, this is the, this is the title, then citizens are entitled to believe that, indeed, part of the issues that they are facing is a union problem. Mm-hmm. You can't anymore turn to say, well, this is an Italian problem. Sure, for us, it is an eco- economically, it is an Italian problem. But politically, it has become, indeed, I agree, a union problem. And there, I think, is the issue that one needs to address. And uh, this is where I think really we need to, to move forward, because I mean, nobody here believes. Uh, I don't know whether you believe that, Uh, I certainly don't, nobody believes that the next step is the demise of the euro. So the worst scenario is continuing in this difficult position, right? Where one improves, but not enough not to have another crisis. Then there is a political response to the crisis, but it's not enough avoid the next crisis and we stay in this sort of bad equilibrium which is not the demise of the euro but it's not a very happy situation and there is always the risk that things can get worse and that is that is not a good equilibrium so i think what we need to discuss from a political viewpoint is what are the steps that are needed from again and feasible from a political viewpoint to go to a happier uh, equilibrium, not the perfect equilibrium, but the happy equilibrium, but that does take into account, indeed, I think what you put your finger rightly on, which is the political problem of this, not so much the economics. Thank you,
1: Masha, let's
0: have two last questions, and
7: then, Ashoka, you can, you can have the last word. Vesa uh, from the Research Institute of
2: Finnish Economy, uh, very many thanks for your presentation. Uh, you seem to emphasise that uh, for a monetary union uh, to function well, it need, needs to be accompanied by uh, a
1: fiscal union. Uh, you refer to Alabama uh, as a U.S. state which benefits yeah, greatly. I, I, I mean that there has to be a political contract within which a fiscal union exists. In other words, not just a technical fiscal union. There has to be a political okay, contract yeah, right. within which a political.
2: Union but still, exists. I, I, my my understanding was that uh, this uh, fiscal risk sharing between the states is uh, an important element of the m- function of the U.S. monetary union, yeah. but how much uh, empirical evidence uh, there is in support of that? As far as I understand, most of the studies that have been done about the smoothing uh, economic shocks between the member states, uh, member um, uh, states in the U.S. Uh, uh, suggest that fiscal stabilization has been very small in comparison no. to what you have through capital markets and, and uh, trade markets. Uh, so uh, is that really an essential part of the uh, story? Yeah,
0: you Thank go. you very much. i at the back. That's the last one. Thank you. Time.
8: Do you discuss in your book? Okay, I highly appreciate your book, but I think it is too categorical. Do you have discussed also uh, the history of the euro when Nixon uh, lifted the? Um, uh,
1: yeah, change you, rate, broke change the, rate broke the red yeah.
8: That was a golden standard for Europe. After two years, Giscard and Schmidt created the snake.
1: Yeah, and that's where they made the mistake.
8: It, it failed three times. Yeah. The answer was, either we go for one currency or we stop the whole thing. Yeah. They went for one currency. Okay, that's uh, theoretically, yeah. And the reason for that was simply that if there is no uh, quiet point in in, in the in financial markets, the single market would collapse one day or another. Yeah. And have you imagined what would have happened if we would not have had a currency after 2008? The d Limits the Lira to, to hell, and the rest in between, yeah? That would have meant, to, probably, the end of European integration.
1: Okay. okay. So let but but just, did you analyse that? Yeah, so I did. Sure. So let me just go in reverse order. Uh, and then, because uh, I will then be able to end with also your your, you know, what if any vision do I have for the future? The notion that a single market requires a currency. No, what, the notion that a single market requires a single currency is is not a logical notion. Today, Germany is 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 exporting much more to uh, to uh, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland than it does to France. Uh, no, sorry. So just let me finish now. Okay. Uh, uh, the, 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 the single currency, the, there, is, there was never any basis for the notion that a single currency is needed for a single market. And you see that in the data. You see that, that European nations are trading with group, countries that are growing fast, not with countries just because there is, there is a single currency. As far as your question, sir, is concerned, Your empirical observation is correct, and my explanation for that is that unless you have a fiscal union that is a public fiscal union, the private risk-sharing has much harder. So the reason the Americans do a lot more private risk-sharing is that there's an entity called the uh, uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that stands behind with a big umbrella with the full faith and credit of the US sovereign. And within that umbrella, there is a complete reassurance to banks and others who are who are operating in the unified financial market that they can, in fact, risk share, that I can invest in Nevada, even though the Nevadans are going crazy, because I have a way of, of, uh, of share, uh, diversifying my risks in, 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 a, in what is a truly unified market. And you see in, 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 in Europe, in the Eurozone, that even now, inflation differentials persist over time. So there are inflation differentials even in the United States. But they last a very short period of time. They reconverge. But today, you have, you have Italy with 0.5% inflation, Germany with 1% inflation. And that inflation differential will persist because monetary policy is too tight for Italy and too loose for Germany. Therefore, that inflation differential does not re-equilibrate by any automatic uh, uh, cause. And so if you do not have a mechanism that unifies then private risk sharing becomes very hard, and so therefore I'm, much, I'm, I'm very sort of skeptical about initiatives like Capital Markets Union and so on, because they are sort of an overlay on on a or a system that is that is not ready to to there's no fer, there's no fertile soil there to absorb them. One two there was a third question before Andres. Sir, so your question was deterministic, right? Whether I was being deterministic. Yes, I am being deterministic. That, that, is, the, that is why I call this a tragedy. Uh, I say that the moment the euro was created, it unleashed a set of forces that are very hard to reverse. They're hard to reverse because the one success of the euro is that it's very hard to break and as long as the euro remains it will continue to amplify economic divergences across the eurozone ipso facto not not it's not that's not a question that's not 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 a debate that is ipso facto it says that a single monetary policy will not work for countries it will hobble the weaker countries and it will support the stronger countries the, Adjustment mech mechanism in the monitor unit, outset monitor
7: and unit, the only difference is that in one case
1: you have adjustment via prices, and in the other way via wages. So I don't I don't fully And, and the, the adjustment via wages is socially catastrophic. So 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 take take no no don't don't shrug your shoulders. Let's let me pursue your, your example. So Italy to adjust by way of wages would require Italian wages to come down at least to Polish levels, if not to Romanian levels. <laughs> and, and the question is whether the social contract in Italy will break as a consequence of that adjustment. There is a reason why countries have floating exchange rates, because of what I think Gurdram called it solves the internal, internal distributional problem, in the least sort of public and offensive way. It is also true. That when there is a devaluation, there is a real wage reduction, as he's saying. But that is possible. But asking a a factory worker in Turin to say, you're earning 1,000 euros a a, a month, oops, you're going to get 500 euros a month from from such and such a time, that's simply not, that's simply politically not possible. Sorry?
4: when
6: you
4: have a huge welfare state you cannot support in the current
1: circumstances. By getting the euro, it really now nice to need to pay pensions in euros. Real pensions yeah. every year. Yeah. Can they support the social burden? Yeah, exactly. Can you have a few last words? So, 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 so I think, and Andrei, well, thank you very much for your very kind comment. I think mm-hmm. you're quite right that ultimately this is a political problem. So, my sort of, my... I, I tried to write a book that is not a policy manual because I wanted to write a history. Nevertheless, when I reach the end, here's what I say. I say, within the current current constraints of the euro, the, the policy objective has to be to loosen the ties that bind too tightly. And by that, I mean... I would get rid of the fiscal rules. I would get rid of the fiscal rules because they serve no economic purpose. They never have, they have no, no, they're economically illiterate. And they're politically corrosive. And I do not accept a proposition that a bad rule is better than no rule. A bad rule is always worse than no rule. That is the proposition. Therefore, the fiscal rules are, 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 have only a negative feature to them, as far as I'm concerned. I believe that Chancellor Merkel and Deweyville was correct, that there has to be a debt restructuring process within, within the Eurozone. I think the people who have taken from that episode that spreads rose because of that episode completely uh, uh, incorrectly read that history. I've spent a lot of time explaining why those facts are not right. There has to be a gradual process, but it has to be a meaningful process. And I described how that process can unfold. And the third is that the ECB must have a dual mandate. It must have a mandate to support employment, as well as price stability. I go back to a paper by Franco Modigliani in 1998, maybe you are one of the few people who may remember this, in which Modigliani in 1998 says that an ECB with an exclusive price stability mandate will always keep interest rates too high. Europe is a continent with very high unemployment. And therefore, will make the unemployment problem worse. Therefore, I, I recommend a, a policy that has a dual mandate. And I can make, I can, I can say with great confidence that this will not compromise the price stability uh, objective. So, within the current constraints of the euro, those are the three things I would do. If And here, again, I think we are saying the same thing. You're saying that it will probably muddle, but there could be a catastrophic crisis. And I see the potential of a catastrophic crisis, mainly in Italy, which I I say is the fault line. And the numbers are very stark. Italy currently has a real interest rate of 2% and its potential growth, it has a potential growth rate of 3 quarters of a percent. It's not a sustainable situation. And so if world trade slows down, as I see it now slowing down, you could have, as early as the later part of 2018, a a loss of confidence in Italy, in which case the spreads will increase. And given the size of Italy with its debt, terrible things could happen. At that point, I say that if it comes close to the point where there is an Italian exit, is, is the only option, then Germany should exit the euro. There's only one safe way to break up the euro. Every way of breaking up the euro is painful, but there's only the least painful way is for Germany to exit the euro. Politically, I, I'm sure you will tell me it's politically not possible. And then the last thing I say in the book is that as long as you're muddling along, in your muddling along scenario, the emphasis should not be only on fixing the euro the emphasis has to be on a mission to renew the wellsprings of growth and unless the wellsprings of growth are renewed and it's not just lip service paid to them on a scale that has is sort of uh, sending man to the uh, to the mars scale there has to be an effort to renew the educational infrastructure of, of, this, of this continent. You wrote this report with Philippe Agnew many years ago on the decline of, of, uh, of European universities. That gap has widened. And so it is, it is closing that gap. That ultimately gives the buffers to deal with the shocks that the euro will inevitably create. Those, that's sort of my, my sort of uh, policy menu for Europe.
0: Well, I, think I will nobody would disagree with that. Actually, the last point. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for a very interesting uh, discussion. And I'm sorry to have kept your long <laughs> time. Don't, thank
1: you long on time.